0: You're listening to The Joy Habit Podcast, Episode 9. Hey, this podcast is all about real ideas on how your nutrition, exercise, stress management, and self-love are all foundations to your mental health and happiness. I'm Allie, a certified nutrition coach, and I'll be chatting each week with my good friend, Lindy, a licensed clinical social worker. Together, we've helped many clients reach their health goals and find emotional stability. It's possible to not only feel happy, but joyful inside and out. Here, we will discuss how to make joy a habit. So let's get started. Okay, hold on, hold on. Hey guys, Allie here. Before we get started, I want to tell you about something I've been dreaming of and working so hard on for a while now. I've created an audio course for women to help guide you through establishing healthy eating habits and self-love practices. This five-week guide will walk you through step-by-step to set up habits that will change your health and help you shed fat. But here's the thing, through this challenge, you will lose fat, you will lose inches, but I don't want just a five-week commitment from you. Girl, I've thought about this and I'm ready for a long-term relationship with you. (laughs) Just kidding. That's kind of creepy. But for real, I want you to join this program when you're ready to commit to making these health changes for the long haul, even after you've hit your goal weight and size. No quick fixes, no crash diets, no nutrition fads. This is the real deal. If you're ready for a future of health and balance, if you're ready to learn to love yourself now and at your goal weight, then I want you in this course. Go to my website www.foodrebelcoaching.com slash self love for all the details and to get on the list. The program starts the middle of March. Okay, now on to the episode.
1: So just, hey everybody, welcome to the joy habit podcast today. Today I'm flying solo and I am with Tracy Ellis. She is a psychologist and is the director of Resolutions Counseling Center in Bountiful, Utah. It's uh, a practice where I currently work as well. And I've asked her to come on today to talk to us a little bit more about anxiety and OCD. So let me give you a little bit of background and I'm going to have Tracy, I'm going to have you introduce yourself as well. So she is skilled in child, adolescent and emerging adulthood psychotherapy and provides comprehensive evidence-based interventions, including structured behavioral modification, cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure and response prevention, acceptance and commitment therapy, social skills training and play therapy. Uh, Dr. Ellis completed her graduate degree at Midwestern University in Glendale, Arizona in clinical psychology. And she also has extensive work with children, and adolescents with mood disorders, behavioral problems, ADHD and the autism spectrum. She did her pre-doctoral internship at Brigham Young University Counseling Center, um, where she treated mood disorders, anxiety disorders, um, including obsessive-compulsive disorders and relationship issues. Her training included couples therapy, sex therapy, psychosocial and psychoeducational assessments, and group psychotherapy. Um, She also has experience working with individuals who identify as LGBTQ. So... I love Tracy. It's been a lot of fun, Tracy, to work with you. And we're excited that you were willing to come on the podcast today and talk to us a little bit more about anxiety and OCD. Um, Is there anything else you'd like to share about yourself, Tracy, and your view of treating mental health and trying to help people overcome some of their challenges?
2: Um, You know, Lindy, I think that was a really good introduction. Um, I would just add that you know, my approach to psychotherapy in general is just really trying to connect people to um, resources, whether it's support network, um, or getting into hobbies or interests to kind of make them more connected to the world around them. And I use that approach in my therapy with um, putting the relationship at the forefront of, of what I do with them, but also trying to balance that with, um, a good amount of skills for that as well.
1: Yeah. I love that. What you said in terms of connecting them, not only like with your relationship with them, but connecting them with the outside world. Cause as you and I see that connection with others can really help decrease some of those Symptoms of depression, anxiety, isolation, and so that is such an important part. And one of the ways we feel like with our podcast we can help people connect and not feel so alone in what they're trying to, you know, change in their lives. So, absolutely,
0: um,
2: yeah,
1: yeah. So, like I said, I've 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 gotten to work with Tracy now for about a year, and yeah, Tracy, you're a great mentor to me and a colleague, and I've really have enjoyed working with you. And one thing I want our listeners to know is how much. Know, I feel like I've learned from you about anxiety and OCD, and you have some great knowledge and skills of dealing with that. So today I'd love to hear from you and have you share some of your expertise, definitions, and some solutions for decreasing anxiety and OCD type behaviors um, for our listeners. So I want to start off with how would you define anxiety as a therapist or as a psychologist, Tracy?
2: Well, I would define anxiety as an emotional state, um, but it's marked by an uneasiness that makes us feel as though we have no power and no control over our circumstances. Mm. Um, so really that robs us, I think, of that in- internal state of, of peace or joy that we're all looking for. Um, so I, I tell my clients all the time that anxiety is one of the worst feeling disorders in my you know, four-inch book of disorders that I have. Um, on my shelf. But at the same time, it is one of the most treatable disorders. So there is a lot of hope to be had. Um, if you're someone who is dealing with anxiety.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I think also, like you said, that feeling of just so out of control, and learning how you can find control and joy, even if your environment is chaotic, kind of going back to that importance of connection, right. can really Ease that anxiety, and like you say, give people hope. So, um, and I know we oftentimes anxiety and OCD words get thrown out very often and interchangeably. Mm-hmm. So, how would you differentiate or define obsessive compulsive disorder?
2: So, I have a short definition for obsessive compulsive disorder that I use a lot, and what I say is it is the disorder of doubt. So so I'll come back to that in a minute, because I'm going to go with a little bit more concrete of definition and then circle back to that. Um, So OCD is characterized by obsessive thoughts uh, that keep knocking at your door, whether you want them to or not. So again, that kind of feeling of not having control over it. Um, So if you think of like a little kid who wants nothing more than your full attention, so they're jumping up and down and saying, look at me, look at me. Um, so you give the kid a little bit of attention thinking you satisfied the kid, but then two minutes later, the kid starts jumping up and down again, Mm -hmm. think of that as the intrusive thought piece of OCD. Yeah. Um, some people think that they have OCD because they experience intrusive thoughts or have unique rituals or things that they like to have a certain way, um, Mm -hmm. like only even numbers or something like that. But that's only half of the equation when it comes to OCD. The other yeah. half is compulsions, um, and so this is what we do in response to the obsessions that either decrease the anxiety experienced by the obsessive thoughts, um, or they can be irrational and odd behaviors that we have this feeling that we must do over and over to avoid something bad happening. Um, so in the classic obsessions about germs example, the compulsion mm-hmm. there is often repeated hand washing. Ah, okay. Um, So circling back to that short definition um, that I said earlier of OCD being the disorder of doubt, what I mean by that is we can have the plan to recognize that our obsessions um, are just that, that they're obsessions, and say to ourselves, you aren't real, or that won't happen. But then the next thought is usually, but what if it is real? Or what if it does happen? And um, this makes it extremely difficult to just ignore the obsessive thoughts. So if you think of like the best salesperson you've ever dealt with, there's probably equal parts annoying and convincing. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's obsessions times 10 right there. That's um, kind of how I think of it.
1: I, I love it. Like that you're talking about that, that doubt. Right. And, uh-huh. and when we get like, in the doubt, I like to describe it as like this anxiety, doubt, shame cycle. Like you talked about, like we have intrusive thoughts and then that influences our our feelings, our emotions, and then that influences our behaviors. And then that continues the pattern of intrusive thoughts. And then we're just in this vicious cycle, so.
2: Right, that's a good way to think of it. Yeah, that connection between the thoughts, emotions, and behaviors, Mm -hmm. and, and even trying to create that separation with your thoughts is very difficult because that doubt comes in and says, well, wait, is this an obsessive thought or is this something I should really pay attention to? It starts getting hard to differentiate. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I'll just add that because Lindy, we're in Utah, there's (laughs) a large LBS population here. I think it gets even harder with those folks because, um, they're, they're also trying to separate. Is this, the um, trying to tell me, to do something or not do something as well. So I think it gets even harder with that population.
1: Yeah, and even I think, you know, having worked in other areas of the country as well, like the Bay Area, I working in Nashville, which is very much, there's a you know um, high religious population there as well, yeah. that I, I've, I've seen that in other religious value, you know, beliefs as well, where it's like, you get obsessive or confused instead of just kind of trusting your gut. Um, right. so right. that definitely adds an element at what people's religious, moral beliefs or compass or values are, can, can add to that, or it can help with that. Right. Depending on, on the person. So, right. um, it, do you see a difference in kids versus adults when you're treating anxiety and just dis- this is kind of a broad question, but like based off of those simple, define definitions is there a big difference in how you see ocd behaviors or anxiety in kids versus adults
2: yeah so there are definitely a couple differences that i've seen between children and adults um so for children i feel like uh, um they have a feeling that of anxiety that is often accompanied by like irritability and agitation more so than adults do mm. so this is but displayed more as I think like behavioral problems or uh, we start talking about oppositional defiance disorder, ADHD or, or some some kind of diagnosis along those lines mm-hmm. because what we're seeing is is how that feeling is manifesting mm. um, and so, Anxiety also impacts our executive functioning. And that's true for children and adults. Mm -hmm. But with children, it's already not fully developed. So we will see more issues that typically show up um, in school with their academics um, or just kind of this poor concentration element as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Another difference that I see is um, children may not have the ability to recognize that what they are experiencing is anxiety or even abnormal if they've kind of dealt with it from, from early on in childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and they, they also may not have the vocabulary to express what it feels like to somebody else. Yeah. Um, so I think that's also why it comes out in these acting out behaviors because they're not sure what to do with it. Um, but adults can typically say, hey, I'm anxious, or I'm feeling anxiety, or I'm stressed, and then they can kind of talk that out with another adult who understands what they're saying. And so there is that kind of validation and understanding component that I think happens more frequently with adults, unless you know, kind of what you're looking for with children. Um, But as it pertains to OCD, I think the biggest difference that I see is that um children typically display more of the stereotypical forms of OCD like contamination concerns and checking behaviors and things like that um and while those are the most common types with adults as well um there's more of this especially in Utah kind of going back to that there's there can be more of these like thought type um obsessions and compulsions that are just kind of happening internally more so Uh um so you may not even be aware that it's happening unless somebody is talking about it but one form of that is called scrupulosity and that's the experience of an unhealthy amount of guilt over moral issues Mm. that is crippling and impacts normal functioning yeah um Yeah. So the person, the personal moral expectations with, with the scrupulosity are typically like unobtainable, like we're reaching for perfection here. And then when that person isn't perfect or doesn't reach that expectation, then there's a great deal of shame. Um, And then the compulsion there is usually a form of confession in that case. Mm. Mm.
1: To release that sense of shame, to see how someone's going to react to it and to
2: try to get it out of your head. Yes. Yep. If I go and confess, then I can strive for that perfection morally again, because that's, that's what I need to do to uh, be forgiven or repent, right, is I need to confess what I've done.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Mm, That's really interesting. Because, like you said, and it's like, the sometimes the person doesn't even recognize it. And I feel like, when I work with clients, sometimes that's half the battle, right? Of helping them just build that self awareness of that cycle that they're engaging in that's toxic to their, you know, functioning or their feelings of confidence and um, and what's sort and not feeling that shame. So that's interesting. I think yeah. a lot of people wouldn't recognize how that moral or perfectionism really feeds into OCD.
2: Oh, absolutely. It does. Yeah. And I think there's confusion over, you know, I'm just trying to live as great or perfect of a life as I can, but I'm feeling tons of shame and a lot of distress, like what's going on here. That doesn't seem to be the way it should work. If I'm trying to, to live a morally high, you know, grounded life, then shouldn't I also be feeling a lot of joy along with it. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that's typically the aha moment. That clients will have to recognize that this is OCD and it's not, it's not uh, necessarily normal.
1: Yeah. It's interesting that you just pointed out too, like, then their thought is like, if I'm trying to live this way, I should be feeling blank, right? That should of mm-hmm. what that expectation is. Allie and I see that a lot with when we're focusing on working with clients with uh, that are trying to, whether it be lose weight, improve their health. Okay. I have a chronic health condition. So if I'm exercising or eating better, my chronic health condition will be better. Um, We've had clients talk about, Hey, this happened and I'm sleeping better and I'm happier, but I'm not losing weight. So what's wrong with that? And trying to help them kind of reframe, what does it mean to be quote unquote successful or be living that healthy lifestyle? Or like you said, that moral, Compass that you're trying to follow, and oftentimes, Tracy, the things that some of the things that Allie and I have heard is things such as I'm a little OCD about this, especially when they're trying to make lifestyle changes. And our podcast focuses on you know using diet, sleep, exercise, and self care as forms of way of um, increasing our joy and our our overall well being. But we do often hear people talk about when they're focusing on making some of those changes, they say I get OCD about it. Um, so I guess my question for you is, I feel like when I hear people say and and joke about that, they don't really quite understand what OCD really is, or maybe some of their own underlying factors that are causing them some anxiety. And it's just easier to joke about OCD. So how do you help people understand that difference, right? Or uh, help and figure out what their underlying factors are of. OCD versus anxiety versus like this idea of perfectionism that you just mentioned.
2: Yeah. Well, I might get a little off topic for a second because I have a soapbox about this. No problem. No problem. Um, So I think we all have quirks about us that are a a bit nonsensical or can cause us some distress when we're confronted by them. So for example, um, like I get irrationally uncomfortable if the volume is it on an odd number. It's been like that my whole life. It really bothers me. So I have to change it to an even number to kind of feel some relief. But I, I don't have OCD, right? That's just like one cork. It doesn't really impact my life too much. Um, and that's it. Um, so it can be extremely invalidating and hurtful, I think, for people to use the, the term OCD flippantly. and I don't think that's anybody's intent, but I, I, I do know having worked with a lot of clients with OCD, that when people use that term, like, "I'm," oh, I'm OCD about this, um, that it can be hurtful and invalidating. Mm -hmm. Um, So the general public tends to talk about OCD as if it's like a helpful disorder to have as well. Like it means someone with OCD is organized and well put together and their house is always clean and they get things done, they're orderly, and all those things. And while that could be true, it also comes along with a great deal of distress. Um, and so those, those with OCD are not usually thinking, oh, I'm so grateful I have OCD. Mm-hmm. Um, so now to address your question more specifically, <laughs> um, I do believe that accuracy in diagnosis matters. Um, it is important to differentiate like clinical anxiety versus a healthy anxiety response to uh, life circumstances so that we're not pathologizing. All anxiety. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's also important to differentiate OCD from perfectionism and from, you know, even obsessive compulsive personality disorder, because the treatment approach will vary. So mm-hmm. I think it is important to know what our starting place is, so that we know how to treat it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. So interestingly, though, OCD, perfectionism, OCPD, all those things are are all in the same family. Mm -hmm. Um, so typically you do have a person or you do not have a person that has OCD that doesn't also have a perfectionistic personality style. Mm -hmm. Um, so it can get kind of hard to tease out. Is there both? Is there one or the other? Um, but I do think again, that it is helpful to know what we are talking about, especially in the context of what you were saying with, with the clients that you work with. Um, that, you know, are getting obsessive about following a diet or exercise plan or self-care because you want to know, okay, are they obsessive about it? Um, Because it's, it's just something that really is important to them and their personality style is one that they like to dive in and know everything they can know and do it perfectly. Is that more of a personality style perfectionism thing or is this you know, an irrational, obsessive thought that may be linked to some body dysmorphia or more severe stuff like that. Yeah,
1: Um, Yeah. and I think also fear-based, like, oh no, what happens if I don't do this? Am I going to completely, you know, people often say, go off the rails, or am I going to completely undo everything I've done, right? That fear of they don't trust themselves or what they're doing.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point to make too, and just, I think you know the the word that came to mind when you said that fear piece is just rigid. Like I think when it comes to diet, exercise, sometimes we can get really rigid about that. It has to happen every day and for this amount of time. And I'm going to do this, you know, workout. And having some flexibility during that process, I think, is helpful to um, decrease the anxiety surrounding it, decrease the fear surrounding it. And I think you can tell me, Lindy, you know, this way better than I do, but I think that would lead to better, um, better adherence to the plan and not, and better motivation if you're trying to eliminate some of those other emotions. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I think speaking to, again, like you said, um, the understanding, why we're doing things right if we're just doing it because it's this intrusive thought and I have to compulsively do it to stop the thinking Mm -hmm. you know then it is like you said that rigidness versus I'm engaging in this because it does bring me joy it is a stress relief but um I have some flexibility that I don't have to do at a client and I the other night actually Tracy we're just talking because we've been talking about intentional what the word intentional does and treating anxiety for this client and the question came up, What's the? how do you know it goes from being intentional to controlling? And that's kind of the conclusion we came to, Tracy, was when it gets to that rigid place where it gets to you can't be inflexible about the routine you're following, the meditation or the self-care or what you do to reduce your anxiety. If there's no flexibility to it, it's gone from that I'm making these intentional choices to this controlling, rigid I can't let go of this or else I'm going to fall into that deep depression again, that fear-based thinking.
2: Yeah. 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 There's a different tone for sure to that. And and there's one that seems more healthy than the other. <laughs>
1: Definitely. So for our listeners, you know, just now that we've talked a little bit about that anxiety, I love the way you define it. And especially understanding with the OCD, that um, disorder of doubt, what are some what are three practical tips or what are some of the practical tips and things that you work with clients on to help them identify their symptoms and, Mm -hmm. um, help them deal with it?
2: Yeah. So I think, um, I definitely, um, start out with, um, trying to help them identify what is actually going on. So, uh, assessment, I guess, is what I'm trying to say is, is kind of the first or the foremost important thing at the beginning of treatment. Um, so again, figuring out what the diagnosis is or trying to help them understand uh, what they're experiencing internally and how that manifests externally. Mm hmm. So once I have understood that anxiety or OCD is a problem, um, it's about giving the client the information they need to understand it themselves Hmm. and then work toward building awareness of triggers and increasing helpful coping skills. Um, Specifically for OCD, there's a lot of psychoeducation that takes place up front along with the identification and labeling of obsessive thoughts in an attempt to externalize them.
0: So just so So
1: for our listeners Uh that may not know, Tracy when we talk about psychoeducation, we're referring to a lot of just teaching under helping people understand, like you said, what's going on with them. That's what we in our mental health field refer to as psychoeducation.
2: Yeah, for sure. Sorry, I should have defined that better. And, I, and just giving them what we what we know, what have we researched about this? What do we know? So it's not this scary thing in the dark. They have with and I think it's also just this moment of, Oh, okay. Like I'm not crazy. I'm not X, Y, or Z. There's a name to Mm -hmm. this. People experience it in similar ways. And there's a lot of validation that can happen through that education.
1: Yeah. I want to just, I'm going to hit on that again, because I think that's such a good, important, practical tip is that validation and that feeling of, Oh, I'm not alone. I'm not crazy. Oh, this is quote unquote, normal for what what I'm dealing with I think the clients that were able to provide that education and that validation that goes a long way for them
2: oh absolutely there there's you know my first couple sessions when we're doing this there's there's totally this like sigh of relief like you can almost see this shame that they've built up about the type of obsessions they've had sometimes and how they're a horrible person person for having those thoughts it just kind of like leaves them they're not carrying that anymore and it's it's a huge part of I think the healing process so um so yeah I think labeling those obsessive thoughts is important too in an attempt to externalize them so this helps the individual understand that they are not their thoughts and therefore they do not need to buy into Mm. what the thought is saying um and, and then I'd say too, like during the assessment phase that I'm talking about, I always do try and ask about the fundamentals, which are sleep, nutritional intake, and physical activity, like you yeah. talk about all the time, Lindy, um, and trying to address any problems in those areas, which there is almost a problem in <laughs> yes. all those areas. Um, and and I, I really, truly believe um, that improving any one of those areas alone can greatly decrease anxiety mm-hmm. and increase joy. Pretty quickly, um, so I think that is an important area to cover yeah. as well.
1: So for you, where you kind of start, and some three practical tips for listeners who might be struggling with some of these anxiety, perfectionism, or maybe do have OCD is to look at one, get some information. You know, talk to a counselor or talk to somebody. And yes, there's lots to research, but understanding what you're experiencing and getting some validation and context. Can really help decrease that. Two is, I liked how you said helping the person identify that their intrusive, obsessive thoughts are not them, that it's, you said, external, that it's a separate thought. It's that idea of, I have this versus I am this. And then number three, like you just uh-huh. said, like w- a piece that Allie and I really emphasize with all of our clients is that diet, the sleep, the exercise are you know, our fundamental skills, if we address some of our challenges in those that will help decrease the anxiety, OCD symptoms and increase our joy. So those are some of the top three tips I'm hearing you say that you start working with clients on when they first come in.
2: Yeah, I would say that that is like my approach Mm -hmm. to working with clients in the beginning. I would add that, uh, that there are a couple other tips that I think are extremely helpful as well. Um, one is thinking outside the box when talking about coping skills or thinking about what coping skills to use to mm-hmm. decrease your anxiety. Um, I feel like a lot of times clients or we as therapists just kind of go to the quote unquote like, the, the therapy coping skills, which are deep breathing, meditation, PMR, imagery, yeah. like those types of things. Um, when really we got to think outside the box, there's a lot of other ways to cope. So like if you're an athlete, tap into that interest. If you like art, tap into that interest. Watch a funny TV show. I know I've used the sitcom Friends many times oh, in my yeah. life to cope with anxiety. Um, okay. So going for a walk, playing fetch with a dog, writing a letter, like all these things that maybe are things that um we overlook because they don't seem fancy enough to be a coping skill, I think can be extremely helpful when trying to yes. decrease anxiety. Um I also would say like talking to people as a coping skill, but just a way to connect can also help decrease um anxiety. So our bodies actually release um oxytocin, the bonding chemical when mm. we're feeling stressed. Um, it's the same chemical that's released when we, Mm -hmm. when we breastfeed. And so it, it's a chemical that really just tells us, Hey, reach out to somebody else. Let's connect to somebody. Um, and connection is a huge antidote for anxiety and stress. So I'd say that, and then particularly though, for the, for individuals dealing with, um, OCD or suspect that they have OCD, I would say the biggest tip there is to, reach out to a trained professional, obviously for that assessment and treatment, because it is difficult to treat on your own. But in the meantime, um, I I named this the next intervention. I think that it would be helpful to try. So it involves keeping a log of what you think your obsessive thoughts are and then saying Mm. next to them. So what I mean by that is, um, During my internship year, I worked with a psychologist who specialized in the treatment of OCD, and she gave me this wonderful analogy to illustrate this point. So she said, um, if the president was holding a press conference and a journalist yelled out to him or her, did you have an affair? And the president um, said, no, I didn't have an affair. What are you talking about? in the headlines the next day, all the articles are going to be, you know, headlining president responds to, did you have an affair or, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's in the news all over this affair comment tied to the president. Whereas if the president had just said next and went on to the next question, there's no life given to Um. that um, comment. Right. So that's the same kind of intervention that we find to be the most helpful with these obsessive thoughts is not, not trying to challenge them. Like we may think of with that CBT model of, okay, how rational is this? Should I, what should, what thought should I replace this with? That tends to just give it life and it persists. But if we just recognize there's that obsessive thought next on to the next thing, that's that is the most effective.
1: I love approach. that. Like you said, mm-hmm. don't give it life. Don't a word I've been using lately is like this idea of emotional bandwidth, right? We only have so much to give. So if you're giving less of that bandwidth mm-hmm. to that obsessive thought, you have more for the positive, for the joy, for the connecting, for opportunities yes. of releasing that yes. oxytocin. So I love that example of next just moving it on and dismissing it like this isn't important this isn't worth my time and my mental energy so um i really like that those are some great tips um is there any other things or examples you can think of of how um when you address your anxiety and decrease some of these things how you've seen in clients um tracy how it increases joy for them?
2: Yeah, so um, that's a great question. I think, by definition, decreasing anxiety increases your capacity yeah. to feel joy. Um, but that doesn't mean you're destined to a lifetime of misery, if you have an anxiety disorder, it just means that we need to rewrite the script. Um, So in fact, the final phase of therapy with uh, my anxiety and OCD clients is, is focused on trying to make meaning and increase Mm -hmm. personal fulfillment. Um, So being able to accept having been wired to be more anxious while also continuing to strive for your personal goals, I think generates joy. Um, So not not letting the anxiety take over and steer you in in this direction, and that direction of life and control you, but rather you, you know, you steer your own bus, if you will, and you have anxiety sit in the back, you know, one of the seats behind you and you are, it's still there. It's still part of your life, but you're now steering that um, or or, yeah, you're in charge of steering Mm -hmm. that steering wheel, right? You're you're moving the bus in the direction that you want it to go. And I think that's a helpful way at, um, having more joy, despite having an anxiety disorder. Uh, I like that
1: example. So that's kind of like in in your bio, you talk about using acceptance and commitment therapy, which by the words alone, you know, for listeners that don't know all of our (laughs) therapy terminology, that really is about how do we accept, what we're going through and but commit to right being the driver of the bus instead of being the back seat and letting the anxiety drive us and like you said i love that you said it's increases the capacity for joy because it's also you're accepting yourself and your challenges but still going toward meaning and goals yes. and and power in your life
2: yeah absolutely and and i think too that just understanding that anxiety and ocd symptoms can be managed like you said that you do have the ability to drive your own bus um, that can in and of itself increase joy to have that realization that you do have more control or power over your life than the anxiety may try and tell you is the case um i also believe that those who experience anxiety uh, tend to have a greater appreciation for the moments of joy in their life or when the anxiety isn't um, so severe and they are typically better able to empathize with others and, and connect in that way that I also believe brings joy. I love how well. you just
1: pulled out Tracy some of, cause I think also when we are wrapping up therapy, especially with um, anxiety, depression and trauma, I end up telling clients okay, what can we learn, right? What, what positives do you see like this of this? And like you just said, it's the realizing I can feel joy.
2: So, um, you know, this may sound cliche, but at this stage in my life, it really is about my kids. So I have a, a, you know, two and a half year old Mila who's growing up fast. And she says the funniest things that I don't even know where she (laughs) got them from. Um, And my, my young baby, Navy, she's eight months old, and she's just learning how to make the best facial expressions, or she'll stick out her tongue or scrunch up her face. And those moments for me just bring a lot of joy. Um, I would also say, though, that, you know, it's not easy Mm -hmm. having two little kids and, and, you know, having this practice that I that I have, Lindy. And so I find myself often trying to reframe the routine things in my life that can feel Mm -hmm. like a chore at times Um, so for example like on a day that I don't feel like getting up and getting ready and commuting 45 minutes to get to work and just want to stay home with my kids or something like that I try to tell myself like I get to work with an amazing talented group of therapists and my job is helping others achieve their life goals and feel and to help them feel well And then all of a sudden what I'm doing that day has more importance and more meaning. And I feel blessed to get to do that for at least one more day. Um, And so I think just with the mundane routine things, I'm able to find joy by just trying to have this perspective shift from misfortune to fortune. I like that
1: perspective shift switch from misfortune to fortune. Well, Tracy, thank you so much for your time and for your, expertise and knowledge and sharing some of your story. Um if you guys want to find Tracy, like we said, she is the owner and clinical director of Resolutions Counseling Center in Bountiful, Utah. And I can post our website is resolutionsUtah.com or you can reach out to us if you need to see or talk to anyone about it.
2: Thank you so much, Lindy. It's been an honor to be invited on your podcast and was a source of joy for me awesome. today. So thank you very much
1: All right. Have a good
0: day, Tracy. Bye. Hey guys, like what you're hearing or want to learn more or maybe get some coaching tips? Visit me, Allie, at my website, foodrebelcoaching.com or Lindy at hers, mymindmystrength.com. We'd love to hear from you.